0: Well, as always, it is good to be back at Timberlake Church. Uh, My name is Dave Nelson. If you've never been here, well, I've been here. I actually pastor a church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We have a couple of campuses in that area. And if you've never been to Southeast Wisconsin, I can assure you of this. As much as it may not seem fun to you or sound like a great place to live, it is a step above hell. And so I tell you, it's worth living there for me, Uh, better than the other options, right? Uh, Last couple of weeks, you have been in a series called Fixer Upper Family, and this whole topic of family is very fascinating to me, because for the past several months, I have been zoning in on Ancestry.com and really been researching uh, the family that I come from. And apparently, there's other relatives who've done the work before me, because in some instances where the family tree starts to branch off, it will go back 15 generations, and just like you, I was kind of hoping that I'd be related to somebody famous. All right, Willie Nelson, Ozzy and Harriet Nelson, babyface Nelson, but no can do. No Nelson uh, is related to me that is famous in any way. Uh, I, I would have been happy for Nelson Mandela. I didn't care if we have to go for first names, just give me something. Well, eventually, Uh, I did discover, just by Googling all of the different names and then doing some more research, that at least one of the guys was semi-famous in the time period he lived. Uh, His name was Guillaume Couture. His name's kind of spelt like William is a French name, but Guillaume Couture. Guillaume's from France. He, as a young adult, moved to New France, which is now part of Canada. And his whole reason for moving there was to be a missionary among the Iroquois Indians. And to hopefully convert them to Catholicism. And so, in the middle of his work with the Iroquois, things became very tense at one point, and they decided to capture him and to torture him. And I know this because there's actually a short book on his life that describes this. He ticked them off through something he had done, and uh, they tortured him by peeling off his fingernails, by breaking his joints. Uh, The palms of his hands were pierced. One finger was actually uh, sawed off with a very dull blade. Just horrible. And then he survived all of that and actually came to good graces with them over the years. They had turned him into a slave. He gained some credibility with them and actually did present the gospel to them, which is pretty crazy. But I tell you that story because if you ever look up at me and think, man, Every time I see Dave, the word warrior comes to mind, or prize fighter. I just want you to know I can't take credit for it. This is just in my genes. But I think it goes without saying that if we could somehow transport Gio to today, and we could sit down with him, if I could sit in a room with him and and talk about life and talk about our perspective of God, it goes without saying, it would be vastly different. And it's not because he's right or wrong or I'm right or wrong. It's just we grew up in different time periods in history. And where you grow up and the time period you grow up in, without a question, affects your view of God. So over the past few weeks, you've been looking at a key verse from the book of Proverbs that kind of zeroes in on the topic of family. I want to read it for you. Uh, Again, it says, By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Your ability and my ability to navigate family dynamics is essential to having a healthy family. But in order to navigate family dynamics in uh, in an effective way, we've got to learn to be good at Asking questions, We've got to be good at learning and being open to different ideas and the different cultures our family comes from or people within our family, kind of their viewpoints. And the reason why it's hard for us to navigate family dynamics, and I think all of us would admit, hey, I struggle with this, is because every family looks different. You can't escape it. I recently read a book called Generational IQ and the whole premise of the book was that every generation has a different view of God and a different approach to life just based on the time period in history they grew up. And of course, that isn't new information. We know that, right? The media that influences your mind, the way you think about marriage, the the way you think as a human, the way you see male and female, uh, the way that you approach work, your idea of work, your idea of how many kids you should have, your, your, your view of country, all of that is influenced by the time period you grow up in. And just think about this. In 1900, the average uh, lifespan of a human being in the United States of America was 48 years old. Today, it's 78. So, so you... Do not take that into consideration when you're looking at someone in their mid-20s who's in your family and you're thinking, you are lazy. You have no direction in your life. Do you realize that your great-grandfather was working at 14 years old? Yes, but he had also been married for like six years and had 19 kids. and was how life was half over. All right, we don't consider that. When you were married in 1900 and you said, till death do us part, you were thinking uh, probably another 20, 25 years together. But today when we exchange vows, it means 50 years. It means 75 years. There is a lot of stuff to think about when you consider the differences that come with generations. Today, for the first time in history, we have really five different, maybe six or seven, depending on how you break them down, generations trying to live together and work together and communicate together and worship together. And so just for fun, at all of our campuses, what I want to do is I want to quickly walk through the different generations. And what I want you to do is have the courage and the willingness to admit, hey, I was born in that time period. This would kind of represent me because I want us to see the diversity represented in a community like this. And again, uh, different authors and and, and different individuals will break down generations uh, in unique ways. But I want to go with this book that I recently read and uh, how they broke down generations. So I'm just going to ask, how many of you would admit you were born before 1945? Before, let me ask that louder and slower. Before 1945. All right, we've got some people. And I know that, yes. Woo! Now the truth is, that really wasn't that long, uh, that, that long ago. Okay, my grandparents were born before 1945. And... They're labeled differently by different people. Some call them the greatest generation, or the silent generation, or the traditionalist. But two thirds of people born before 1945 grew up on farms or in rural areas. And so there wasn't a whole lot of media influence to impact them. They certainly had newspapers, and of course they grew up in the golden age of radio. Woo Everybody's sitting around, my grandma will tell me stories of them sitting around listening to the radio. This, of course, is a generation that grew up during the Great Depression, and so that certainly shaped a group of people in regards to how they approached money and savings and how they thought about life. World War II took place during this time period. I didn't even realize this, that over 50% of men in this generation served our country in the military. You wonder why. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You wonder why there's such a loyalty to country among an older generation? Well, this was just part of life. But they also grew up in a time of segregation. Not everything was picture perfect. But because of the depression, because of the war, everybody kind of had to unite together. And so the idea of having uh, some sort of institution to rely on was a normal thing. People relied on the government. They relied on each other. It was not frowned upon like it is in other generations. This is the, the generation that really formulated the, the way uh, church was done years and years ago with a lot of rules and restrictions and, and uh, kind of you feel boxed in. And the problem is we can look at that and say, I don't like the institution of church. But for this generation, the institution of church wasn't all that bad. Everybody felt like they had to come together. One of the biggest voices in Christianity was a guy by the name of Billy Sunday. Now, this was in the early 1900s. So those that raised your hand, this was like your parents or even grandparents. But Billy Sunday was against everything. He thought everything was sin, from playing cards to the roaring fashion of the 20s to what he referred to as Mr. Booze. Uh, Everything was sin. And then World War II comes, and after World War II, Billy Graham becomes the leading voice in Christianity. And the bottom line, if we could just summarize it, is growing up in this generation, it's very easy to get to the point where the institution of church is okay and the view of the Bible is pretty much God spoke it out of the heavens and if the Bible says it, I believe it and it's true. Well, after World War II, men start coming back home and Bing Crosby's playing in the background and nine months later, babies start showing up. Woo, the baby boom. 1946 to 1964, how many baby boomers do we have in all of our campuses? Yeah, there's a lot of you. There's a lot of you. Families start growing and they start moving from rural areas into more urban areas, into the suburbs and the cities. And when you put a bunch of people together in this area in a a closely confined group, what do you have? You have a lot of influence sex, drugs, and rock and roll. TV started replacing the radio. Thank you, Jesus. But this is not a time period in history where there's a lot of different things on TV. There's pretty much three stations, NBC, CBS, and ABC. And so if you grew up in this generation, you could see really a group of actors and know immediately where they're from. In fact, let's just try this for the baby boomers. Where are they from? Gilligan's Island. Right? Now, if I were to show you a bunch of actors from the, 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 you know, 2015 or 2016, there'd be some confusion because there's so many different shows. But everybody kind of has a very similar uh, impact in their life when it comes to the technology that's out there. Lots of historical events, from going to the moon to Woodstock. Civil rights, women's rights on the forefront. The economy is doing well. In fact, their parents had to know a lot about sacrifice, but they don't have to know so much about sacrifice. 1959, Life Magazine comes out with a Article that says for the first time in the history of humanity, first time, people, the average individual actually can have excess in their life. This is more than just providing food and shelter. Now we have opportunity to actually accumulate stuff. Few years after that, Time magazine came out with a very provocative cover that asked the question: Is God dead? And basically, the idea was if. We've got so much affluence like we've had and so much excess and we have so much improvement in our technology and our science. Do we even need God anymore? And there was a hyper-focus on self and accumulating things and moving forward. Well, how that affected the boomers in regards to their approach to God is they'd show up to churches looking for something that made them feel good. And they'd stay for a while, but then if they got offended over something, and I realized we got to find churches that we identify with, but if they get offended, they go to another church and start church hopping, instead of maybe going through the dark night of their soul with other people. But again, the focus was on self. And then the Gen Xers come along. Okay, this is my generation, 1965 to 1976. Who do we have in the room? Yeah, lots of Gen Xers represented. Michael Jackson. Woo! Uh, That was not a Michael Jackson move. I don't know, right? Madonna, MTV. No fault divorce was introduced, and so uh, consequently, it was very easy to get divorced. Uh, Many Gen Xers grew up in single parent households. Uh, Lots of mothers started working for the first time. It just became normal. That's not a bad thing. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying every generation's different. Truth became relative, we grew up where religion and politics seemed to be married. You had the moral majority and the Christian coalition. We watched televangelists after televangelists after televangelists fail ethically and morally. And so, quite honestly, Gen has just got real cynical with religion. It's not that we don't like God, it's just, we just got cynical. And, and if science contradicted the Bible, we would just say, hey, the Bible's not a scientific textbook. It, it didn't bother us. It, and so every generation is so different. And then you have the millennials, nineteen seventy-seven through nineteen ninety-seven. Oh, wow! Timberlake Church is filled with millennials. Right? Lots of transition happened during this generation growing up. Everybody was pretty much wondering, whatever happened to predictability? The milkman, the paper boy, the evening TV. Right? It's a generation that was spending 50-plus hours a week uh, with different aspects of media, from TV to computers and movies. 9-11 unfolded for this generation as they were growing up, unintentionally many of them raised as consumers, wanted to make sure everybody got a trophy, everybody got noticed, reality TV started making it big. The biggest thing this generation has done for our country, I think in a very positive way, is embrace diversity. In fact, one of the biggest sins for a millennial is do not judge someone who is not like you. You don't know their story. They may not have a whole lot of understanding of Bible history, but they kind of have this idea that you need to be good and feel good and do good. And then the fifth generation, as summarized in this this book I had gone through, was uh, called Generation 2020. And I'm not, you know, I'm guessing there's probably nobody in the room in that. 1997 through now. Do we have anybody in 19? Oh, yeah, we got got a couple. We got a couple. Not a whole lot said about them because it's still kind of being defined, but certainly lots of access to information. Gets tons and tons of attention through selfies. (laughs) Right? Social media is everything. Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram used to be Facebook, but then their parents got on Facebook, so they got off of Facebook. <laughs> now, I take all of that kind of time to walk through those generations to just help us understand the complexity of when you try to take different time periods and different cultures and different ways of thinking and blend them together, what happens? It just gets messy. There, there's conflict. It's, it's almost impossible to define family. And we say, what is a family? Well, you, you really can't even define it. I mean, regardless of the time period you grew up in, regardless of the culture you grew up in, every family is kind of forced to live in the tension between what we call idealistic and realistic. Every family lives in the tension between idealistic and realistic. Now, this is important to understand because if you've ever read through the teachings of Jesus, or any of the early church leaders, you know that they're constantly talking about things that are idealistic. They're painting picture of what it means to be the epitome of a follower of Jesus Christ. They're idealistic when they talk about marriage, and when they talk about family, they say this is what it should look like or could look like. And sometimes we feel disconnected from it, it doesn't resonate with us the way it should, but we gotta remember this was written in the first century it was written to a very Greek-thinking, Roman-behaving culture. And so what is common sense for us or maybe even offensive to us or, uh, or maybe we approach it emotionally in different ways? we got to remember, for people living in the first century, some of the teachings we read about marriage and family specifically are just completely revolutionary. Here's what the Apostle Paul taught in regards to the family. He says, Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, on the surface, we read things like this, and we either... Identify them as idealistic, offensive, or common sense. I mean, why in the world would the Apostle Paul feel the need to write something as obvious as, Husbands, love your wives, and never treat them harshly. Because men in this culture treated everything harshly. They treated their slaves harsh. They treated their children harsh. They treated their animals harsh. And since they didn't really see their wives as much different than their cattle, Paul says, hey, here's how you need to treat your wives. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Show consideration to them by the way you interact with them and the way you talk to them. And so the Apostle Paul is elevating the role of women. And the men living in Colossae, which is part of modern-day Turkey in first century, are thinking, "Well, well, hold on. What do you mean I'm supposed to love and show consideration to this wife of mine? I didn't even get to choose her. My parents chose her. Here's the deal: they had some really good friends who had like three daughters, and nobody was going after the middle one. And so they told my parents, Well, we'll give you a cow if you'll take this, this girl to be your son's wife. And I didn't even get to pick her, I didn't want her. It would years and years ago. And you're saying I need to show consideration to her. And Apostle Paul says, Absolutely. And then he addresses the wives and he says, Now I realize you didn't get to choose your husband, but I want you to submit to your husband. Now, this is something you'd expect Donald Trump to say at one of his rallies. But this is the Apostle Paul. And submit is not a bad word. It's really about wives working with their husbands. It's saying, I'm not going to work against you. I'm not going to make life difficult for you. I'm going to try to find common ground with you. So this isn't about being a doormat. It's not about being inferior of lesser value. And Paul is, again, speaking to... Women in first century, he says, listen, I want your husbands to love you. I want them to respect you. I want them to care for you. But I want you then to work with them and respect them as well. To the children, he says, children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. And the children are thinking, man, what? what, what, hold on. My parents are so out of touch. You don't know my parents. They think I love Lucy's funny. Well, they think the original cast of Saturday Night Live is better than any other cast. You don't get it. But he says, children, obey your parents. There needs to be structure in the home. There needs to be authority in the home. And then he goes on and he says, hey, dads, don't aggravate your children. Now, certainly moms and dads can learn from this. But the Apostle Paul is highlighting dads because they treated their kids harshly. They spoke to them harshly. They didn't give them much consideration. You know, kids didn't play the role in society that they play today. And so the Apostle Paul felt a need to say, parents, don't irritate your children. Don't push all their buttons. You know, this is a society where, quite honestly, many children didn't even receive names when they were born because the mortality rate was so high. They didn't know that they were even going to live. And if they did live, their value was based on what they accomplished there were many individuals who did not leave their inheritance to their children. They actually didn't feel like their children were that responsible. And so they'd adopt someone they felt was more responsible than their kids and leave the inheritance to them. I'm not saying it's a good idea, just but there's a thought for you. But Paul says to fathers, he says, listen, don't irritate your kids. Be selective in the words you use. Don't treat them like servants or like animals. Children were just nobodies in the society. They didn't have anything to offer, which is why it was so revolutionary when Jesus would say, hey, I see everybody pushing kids away. You don't want them to spend time with me, but let them come here. And when Jesus would take kids and say, hey, listen, the kingdom of heaven is like a kid. People would say, No, we don't learn anything from kids. And Jesus said, No, you can learn something from them. And so, Jesus and early church leaders were constantly elevating the status of women and children. Now, to us, we hear these teachings, and again, they're not all that revolutionary. They feel pretty much like common sense. The word submit, we could argue about that, but we understand the value of like mutual submission. We read that plenty of times in scripture. Husbands and wives submit to one another. So, it feels like common sense. And yet it's interesting as we look at this idealistic picture that the apostle Paul painted and we could find this all throughout the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus where this idealistic view is painted and we say it's idealistic and I actually agree with most of it and and it's common sense, but I, I can't even come close to achieving it. The interesting thing about Jesus is when he would talk about the ideal and talk about the standard and talk about, hey, here's where I want you to go, He'd never condemn people who didn't get there. But he didn't shy away from talking about it either. And that's important because I think all of us, when we look at our families, we say, that's not all that idealistic. I look at my family. We've got issues like everybody else. Last couple weeks, my wife and I, you know, we've been having our friction, which is a nice way to sugarcoat kind of the tension we've been experiencing lately. Just a lot of things happen in the family. I've shared very open, and I know I'm friends with some of you on Facebook, about uh, some issues we've gone through with my daughter, Alyssa. Uh, Alyssa was 12 years old when she started to really, really battle anxiety and depression. Uh, consequently, she started skipping a lot of school to the point that she literally would not go. Now, at one point in my life, I would have said, dude, you're the parent. You pick them up. You carry them there. And, and I tried to do that once or twice, but it's a, that's a losing battle. And I thought, well, this is just hormones, or this is just some emotions she's going through, you know, 12 years old, and then 13 years old. And eventually I realized, no, this is something serious. She was in bed 16, 17 hours a day. And Rindy and I, my wife and I, started to really take this seriously and so said, we've got to get her help. And then she started talking about, I want to take my life, I don't want to live any longer. As a parent, you just feel crushed, you feel destroyed. I'm thinking, this is my family. I'm trying on the Lord, you know, trying to be a family that goes to church and prays together on occasion and does. But even the family that I'm trying to put all the great biblical principles, it's just not idealistic. And we had an opportunity not long ago, just actually at the beginning of this year, to bring Alyssa to a program in Nashville. And uh, she's now 15 years old, but they're helping her learn how to manage this effects. Uh, I, I talked with her today, and she's just doing, in just six or seven weeks that she's been there, she's doing really, really good. And we anticipate a great future. But here's what I know. Family is not idealistic. We could point, oh, yeah, husbands, love your wives and, uh, you know, show, show care and compassion and be considerate for them. Wives, submit work with your husbands. Children, obey your parents all of the time. But life is there. And there's stress, and there's tension, there's anxiety, and there's depression, and there's anger, and there's emotions. So realistic families don't look like that. And it's not just living in 2016. Matt grew up in the 80s. My family at one point, we eventually had seven kids in our family. My, my family at one point looked like this, right? I'm 10 years old. And if you're wondering, Dave, which one are you? Let me just point that out to you. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> All right, but, but there is no idealistic family. We talk about families, and everybody's looking at it from different perspectives based on the time period you're growing, based on your specific situation. There's divorced families and blended families and single-parent families, families with foster kids, families with adopted kids. There's situations in which grandparents are raising the families. And so if we want to throw around terms like father and mother and son and daughter, we can't escape the fact that those are emotional terms. They're not emotionally neutral terms. They're emotionally charged terms based on your experience. You might have great memories or you might have horrible memories. You might have happiness or you might have sadness based on what you grew up in. And then to add to the complexity of families and the reality we have to live with, every family member wants power, control, and independence. doesn't matter how old you are doesn't matter how wise you are doesn't matter what your gpa every family member wants to somehow be in control and have the power and, and be independent and we live in a society where regardless of age everybody is taught to demand their own way and so inevitably there's conflict in the family and conflict within families is different than other types of conflict it's a lot more complicated it's a lot more emotional and sometimes it seems to be like the song that never ends, it just goes on and on, my friend. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was, and then they continued singing it forever just because it is a song that never ends. It goes on and on, my friend, right? It's just like dude, the, the family, the fight just over and over and over and over. And then based on our personalities, we all deal with that conflict differently. Some are peacemakers. Just can we all just get along? My wife's a peacemaker. Any peacemakers in the house? Any just couple? Oh, they're so nice. Is this, yeah, right here? And then there's sulkers. People just kind of, they don't want to say anything, but you, they want you to know they're mad. Any sulkers? All oh, right, a couple of you. All right, litigators. People are like constantly trying to present some sort of argument one way or the other. Oh, yeah, you love you love arguments because you know you can win through your reason. Right? Some of you are stuffers. You get mad, but you don't want anyone to know you're mad. Any stuffers? You're just like, I'll, I get mad, but I just don't let anybody know screamers, oh, nobody's going to admit to be, oh, you lying hypocrites, right, screamers are people like, man, we always laid everything on the table, but then you get in an argument with your spouse, and you're just thinking, I'm laying everything on the table, and they're just silently praying, demon, come out in the name of Jesus. We don't have time to read it, but the half-brother of Jesus, a guy by the name of James, writes a manuscript. And in that manuscript, and, and the verses are in your outline, you can read them later, but in the manuscript, he basically addresses this question of why? Why do we have so many fights and arguments among us? And it gets to the point, it just says, basically because we're not getting our own way. And when we don't get what we want, we do whatever we have to do in order to get it. And therein is a conflict in our families. And so as we bring these thoughts to a close, I want to End with this question. That is, how do you deal with the tension that develops with all the different personalities and all the different generations and all the different ideas? And how do you deal with the tension? I know it sounds like an oversimplification, but at some point we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus did on one of the emo- most emotional nights of his life. And I want to look at this as we bring things to a close because we're just, we're just a, you know, basically days away from, from Easter. And we're going to be reflecting on Good Friday and all the things that happened. But we need to reflect on what Jesus did on one of the most emotional nights of his life, just 24 hours before he died when he celebrated Passover with his disciples. Here's what we read. This is a lesson for all of us. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come to God and would return to God. So, so just time out real quick. Just before he eats the Passover meal, it just dawns on him, hey, all authority has been given to me. I have the most power. I have the most influence. I have the most say right now. I'm the control. I'm the rabbi. I'm the teacher. I'm the master. So what do you do when it dawns on you? You're the most important person in the room. Or you've got the most power. Or you've got the most influence. Or you've got the most say. Here's what Jesus did. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. In the Passion of the Christ, here's how we see that movie describe this scene. Namayez Nakom. na kom Dau di Sana ani And Ti evelasiki nimbetele Endura dafuli Erdafon Altikhalon Don't miss the words of Jesus. I'm not messing with you. I don't know what he said in that (laughs) one. But he said, the servant is not greater than his master. The servant is not greater than his master. And in fact, I've got all the power and the authority and the influence, but watch, I'm gonna wash your feet and I'm gonna set an example for you. Now you go and do the same for others. In our culture, we don't wash each other's feet. In our families, we don't wash each other's feet. But there is something we can do to change our family dynamics that would show just as much humility. The one question that will change the family dynamics for all of us is this question. What can I do to help? Mom, I see you're stressed out. What can I do to help? Dad, I see some things are going on, and you just feel like, I just tell by your tone of voice, you're getting, what can I do to help? Hey, baby, I see that you've been getting ready, and I see things are frantic. What can I do to help? Hey, I see you're running by, what can I do to help? There are times that each of us will have the power and the influence in our families. We'll have the control, we'll have the the final say, right? Even as a kid, there are going to be moments where you feel like, hey, I've got the influence right now. You can overpower others, you can make a point, you can do what you want to do, or you can do what Jesus did, laid down that power. By asking the question, hey, what can I do to help? How can I be a benefit to you? Family dynamics are tough. We all come from different ways of thinking in different periods of, 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 of time. But The one thing all of us can do to try to get together and fix up our families just a little bit more is learn to understand where others are coming from and ask that question, what can I do to help? How can I be a blessing to you? How can I fix this situation? Let me pray for you.